Well, then looking to God for his uh, help and his guidance, let's turn to Luke chapter 5 again. The last portion that we read. And at the end of verse 10, we read that Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And we also read in the verse following that when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now the events in this chapter uh, begin very early in the morning with Christ walking along the shore of the lake of Galilee, somewhere near the village of Bethsaida, where Peter and Andrew lived and James and John as well. And uh, as the Lord is walking alongside the shore, he sees two boats, one of them of course belonging to Peter and Andrew, and the other belonging to James and John. These boats would be well, well known in the village, which was indeed a fishing village, one of the many fishing villages that were scattered along uh, the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John were actually partners, uh, holding their boats together, and they would have a good and a lucrative enough business uh, beside the Lake of Galilee. Now, it's not actually that long since the Lord had seen them there before. And in fact, he is very deliberately coming back beside the lake to find them again. Just a few weeks or maybe a month or two before this, uh, he had found them in exactly the same spot. Peter and Andrew at that point were casting <coughs> their nets into the sea. James and John had come ashore and were mending their nets. But of course on that occasion the Lord just immediately called them to follow him. Now of course they knew who he was. Uh, they knew him very well. They had heard him first of all when John the Baptist was preaching uh, the message of repentance down beside the River Jordan. In fact, they were themselves followers of John the Baptist. And of course, they had heard John the Baptist mark out Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah who was to come, and they had embraced him as the Messiah. But of course, that didn't mean that they left their occupation or anything of that kind. Not everyone who was called to believe in Christ was called to leave their occupation. That would be an absurd thing to do. Uh, they carried on working in the work that God had given them. And they gave it their best, which is what the Lord required them to do. But on the first occasion he met them, he called them. And by follow me, they knew well what the rabbi meant. It was a call to leave their work and to follow him in well, 
we would understand it, and I'm sure to some extent they did, as full-time discipleship. In other words, they weren't simply to believe in him, they had done that already, but they were to follow him closely, walk around with him, learn from him, be with him night and day, be trained by him, instructed, so that they would themselves become preachers of the gospel, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself was preeminently a preacher of the gospel. So he had been this way before. But on this occasion, when the Lord walks beside the sea, the boats are empty, and Peter, Andrew, James and John are all busy cleaning their nets. Now, of course, it was never easy for Christ to be on his own for any length of time anywhere. I was just reading myself last night a portion of scripture that reminds us just in the midst of strenuous activities that the Lord went away into a desert place and he prayed. These things happened, I'm sure, as often as they could. But the Lord was in constant demand, both for healing, but especially for the word. And on this occasion, we're told that the crowds, even that early in the morning, pressed around him to hear the word of God. Praise God that that was their motive. They wanted to hear the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus, of course, was preaching. The need for faith in God and repentance towards him. And uh, that, of course, would reveal itself in godly living. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but the Sermon on the Mount kind of godly living. And that was the kind of preaching that the Lord Jesus Christ himself preached. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. And from the beginning he made it plain that the means of entrance into that kingdom was bound up with accepting himself, his person, as the prophet of God, the Messiah, indeed the Son of God manifest in the flesh. Now, as he was preaching, unexpectedly, or unexpectedly to the people around him anyway, he decides to use one of the boats as a kind of pulpit. He steps himself into the boat, because it's near the shore, and he turns to Peter, who is, of course, um, cleaning their nets, on the shore and he says uh, push push me out a little in this boat and of course Peter would go in with him to do that and from inside the boat he would punt his way out just a little out from the shore and there the Lord begins to preach and um, he sat and he taught the people from the boat until he was finished <coughs> Now, I suppose the obvious reason for teaching from the board is that it's a kind of natural place in its own way to teach from. Usually the ground slopes down low as it begins to hit the sea, and there's a, a kind of natural theatre there around the Lake of Galilee. And of course the water doesn't just carry us, the voice doesn't just carry through the air, but it goes to the sea, and in that way, hits from another direction. Those of you who are familiar with the sea, I'm very familiar with those who are familiar with the sea, will tell you that a voice carries very clearly 
very well over a very long distance in the sea. So there's something calm and tranquil and majestic about hearing the Son of God preaching from a boat as a pulpit just a little off the shore. But the fact of the matter is that the Lord's reason for entering the boat was not just to do with acoustics or anything of that kind. In fact, his primary reason for entering the boat had had to do with Peter and with Andrew, and indeed with their partners James and John, because although this was a day like many other days in his early Galilean ministry, filled with teaching and preaching and healings and miracles, the main thing on the Lord's heart that day was the spiritual condition and commitment of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And their situation is the kind of situation that requires Christ's call to be given a second time. It's a wonderful thing for Christ to visit us once. It's more wonderful for him to visit us twice, especially when it's the same command. Depending on the kind of disobedience we have, the treatment can be quite different. I mean, Jonah famously was told once to go to Nineveh. Uh, His response was extremely stubborn. It's not just that he was a bit weak, but he, he was told effectively to go east. You'll remember that he went west. He found a ship going to Tarshish in Spain, which was to the then known world as far as it was possible to go from Nineveh on the other side. That kind of disobedience can only be sorted out by whale's intestines and experiences of that kind. And by the time the Lord finishes dealing with us like that, well, the next time we say go to Nineveh, we tend to go to Nineveh. But it was a gracious thing that God said to him a second time, now Jonah, go to Nineveh. After all, he could have just set Jonah aside. And he could have done what he was going to do in Nineveh through somebody else. And of course, God will do his own work. And if you are not prepared to do it, he will bypass you. If I am not, he'll bypass me. And it's always a sad and chastening thing when we are bypassed, when God has something to do that we ourselves should have done. So it was a gracious thing that God said to him a second time, now Jonah, go and do it. Well, there's an element of that here. Not the same kind of disobedience, it's not the same kind of stubbornness, not at all, but there's something, there is a problem that can only be sorted out by a revisitation, a reissuing of the call, the call to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you'll notice on this second occasion that the call is accompanied by a miracle. Now, maybe I should just say that if the two incidents sound to you a little bit similar, well, you can try and spend time in reconciling them. I should know because I spent four and a half hours, and they are impossible to reconcile. There is no doubt that we are dealing here with two distinct incidents. An initial call followed weeks or months later by a second call. This second call is accompanied by the miracle of the draft of fishes. The net 
is laid down even though there should be no fish there and the net is raised full of fish. A miracle of such power, not only in its nature but in its timing. You know, many of God's works are far more amazing because of their timing rather than their substance. This was a miracle of timing and substance. And because of that timing and substance, it produced a deep and profound awe on the spirit of Peter. So much so that he said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. I am not worthy. The centurion said that you should come under my roof. Peter effectively says, I am not worthy that you should stand in my boat or that I should be in your presence. That's what the presence of God does when it comes near. It produces that deep sense of inadequacy and uncleanness. But that miracle is, of course, here for a purpose. It accompanies the second call. Now, whenever a miracle accompanies a call, or whenever a miracle accompanies the word, we must always allow the word to explain the miracle. What the Lord does here is not just a wonder. It's a sign. And a sign is always more than a wonder. A wonder produces wonder. A sign signposts. In other words, the Lord is saying, watch what I do, watch what I've done, learn from what I am doing, and apply this draft of fishes to your own spiritual lives. Because follow me again, I say to you, and I will make you fishers of men. Or this time, he says, from now on you will catch men. And that brings me something else, just something else by way of introduction to this. Perhaps the best way of distinguishing the two incidents is just by noting the differences in what the Lord actually says. Now, these are the most clear differences, uh, but I'm not really interested in pursuing them at this point. I only want to highlight the difference in what was said. When the Lord called them the first time, he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we're told that they left their nets and left their servants and family workers. So follow me, I will make you fishers of men. On this second occasion, there's a difference. Don't be afraid, he says, and you will catch men. And on this occasion, they forsook all and they followed him. So interestingly, you'll notice on this occasion, as well as a call, there's an encouragement. That's tenderness on Jesus' part. Uh, it's as though he's not... In one way, he's almost not noticing uh, a kind of reluctance. I'll come to that in a second. There's an encouragement. Don't be afraid, he says. And there's also an assurance of success. First time round it was, I will make you fishers of men. This time, you will catch men. And as a response, 
They leave everything and they follow him. Don't be afraid. You will be successful. Now, friends, it's an easy thing in the Christian life to become discouraged. That's because the work in front of us is always vast. That is to conquer sin in your own life and in as much as you can to conquer sin in the world around you. Tell me what's harder than that. It's a vast, vast work. It's a difficult work. And of course you have more opposition than anyone else engaged in any other kind of work. The devil isn't really interested in anybody else's labor except the Christian's labor. Anybody who's trying to advance the kingdom of God, whether in your own heart or in your family or in the the church or wherever you are, will have the opposition of Satan. And Satan loves to discourage. There's no doubt that by discouragement he can achieve so much more than we could imagine he could deceive by discouragement. I remember reading an old um, story, it's an old illustration. Uh, I have no idea where it came from or where or when I even read it. But the, the story went something like this, that, um, that, the, that God had commissioned his angels to strip the devil of all his power. And uh, the devil said, well, he said, can you leave me with just one arrow? One arrow that I can fly. And uh, they said, well, what is it? And he said, can you, can you just leave me with the power of discouragement? He says, I, I, I don't want the power to produce adultery in someone or to produce lying or, or anything like that. He said, just leave me the arrow of discouragement. And that the angel said, very well, we'll leave you that. And that Satan laughed and said, I have everything else with this. Now, that was the story, and there's far more truth in it than we realise. Discouragement means that you are weakened, incredibly weakened, and you become a prey for the evil one. You have lost your, well, the, the French word at, at the root of the word discouragement uh, is the word cure for heart. A person of courage is a person of heart. Person who's discouraged has lost heart. And you know, when you lose your heart, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And the Christian is easily discouraged. And it's very easy for the Christian to fear failure. That's again because the task is so big. The task is so big. And a preacher's task is very big. I'll say something about that in a moment it's certainly a paralyzing thing and of course Peter was to discover a, a little later on that the key to keeping encouragement high was to keep your eye on the Lord he learned that of course when he came out of the boat he asked the Lord to call him out of the boat the Lord called him out of the boat and he began to walk on a storm astonishingly He walked on a storm and he conquered a storm until he suddenly began to notice the storm. And when he noticed the storm, he wasn't noticing the Lord. And of course, he began to sink, as we all do. 
the wind and the waves, looking at the wind and the waves, produce discouragement. Looking at the Christ who stands on top of them produces encouragement. Now, so far, the Lord had not failed Peter and Andrew, and he hadn't failed James and John. Peter had even seen him heal his own mother-in-law with a, a deadly fever. He just took her by the hand and raised her up to health. He had seen the Lord perform many miracles and many wonders. Uh, he had seen that since he started following him in the way in which he was following him as that kind of believing disciple from the earliest days beside the Jordan. And when the Lord called him, to follow him and to learn in order to become a preacher of the gospel. I'm sure he was quite wholehearted doing that. So was James and so was John and so was Andrew. We're told that on that occasion they left their nets. James and John left their father, Zebedee, in the boat along with the hired servants and off they went with the Lord. Was there something of an adventure in that? Was there something of the person who feels, well, this, this is something new this is something exciting and this is something wonderful. We are not just believers and occasional hearers, but we are full-time disciples and we are heart and soul with the Lord. We will follow him here and we will follow him there and we will preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We can all, I suppose, understand that. But obviously, something got in and something got in the way. And that's where one very simple evidence for that is that on this morning the Lord finds them after a busy night's fishing washing their nets. Big question is why? How come? And that would have been a normal thing to do in the days when they had their nets and when they themselves were crowd owners of their boats. Had they actually sold them or though they left them? Maybe not. Were they leaving a door open for going backwards? It's amazing how often we want soft landings when we jump. When God wants us to jump, we arrange a soft landing. And if we can't arrange a soft landing, we don't jump. Had they actually sold them? Well, this indicates not. They left them, but not completely. You'll remember when Elisha was called uh, to follow Elijah. And to train to take Elijah's place, you'll remember that he took the twelve yoke of oxen and that he had them slain to provide a feast and he also burnt the yokes. <coughs> That's effectively a way of saying, I'm not going back. I've put my hand to the plough to which God has called me to put my hand and if I look back, I am not fit for the kingdom of God. That was Elijah's way of saying, I am wholeheartedly going to do what God is calling me to do. That's how we all have to be anyway. When God sets anything before you, do it. Whatever the sacrifice, whatever the consecration, whatever the calling, whatever the difficulty, whatever the problems, potential or imagined, do it. Do it wholeheartedly. Do it unto the Lord. But for some reason, Peter and Andrew, James and John, held back. And so on the previous evening, they're missing in action. And this morning, they're absent without leave. 
Why are they not in the group that are travelling with the Lord? Well, friends, the fact is that we don't know exactly why. But the fact that the Lord tells them not to be afraid, and the fact that he gives them an assurance of success, is implicitly telling us that maybe that was the problem. Were they suddenly overcome with a sense of inability to do what God was calling them to do? A sense of unworthiness to do what God was calling them to do? Was it the case that having reflected on things they thought, well, maybe we're better just doing what we always did. Certainly not giving up on the Lord. Certainly maybe going and following him here and there. Maybe even more than we used to, but not in this way, not completely burning your bridges, in this case burning your boats. But let's just continue. It's a kind of foot in both camps kind of thing. We're familiar with a foot in both camps. You've heard the expression, even if you're not converted here, sometimes I may say to you that you've got a foot in both camps. You've got a foot in the church, you've got a foot in the world. And who knows how long we've had a foot in both these camps. And Elijah would say to you, how long are you halting between your two, two, two opinions? If God's God, well, follow him. If he's not God, well, don't follow him. It makes no sense to have a foot in both camps, and you probably know that yourself. But sometimes even as a Christian, you can have a foot in two camps. Doing some of what the Lord requires you to do, but some of what he requires you to do, you don't. Who knows why? Something to do with fear. Something to do with unbelief. Something to do with difficulty. Something to do with personal inadequacy. For whatever reason, you're not staking your all. You're not wholehearted in the matter. You're half-hearted in the matter. And the Lord doesn't want half my heart or half yours. He wants it all. He didn't give us half his own. He gave us all. And it's your all that he wants from you. Now, I've no doubt that as Peter and Andrew and James and John followed the Lord, they began to discover that it was perhaps more difficult than they realised it to be. Um, that's life. It's certainly the Christian life, anyway. It's life generally, but it's certainly the Christian life we discover that every part of it is a little bit more difficult than we thought it to be. And the ministry of the gospel is no different from that. And I'm sure when they began, it was all quite straightforward and easy. The Lord was riding the crest of a wave of popularity. The multitudes were coming to hear from north, south, east and west. But then you see the opposition came. And it was a cultured, refined and sophisticated opposition often an intellectual and a highly biblical in one respect opposition. You had the scribes, you had the Pharisees, and you had the Sadducees. And I suppose it's no wonder that people like James and John and Peter and Andrew who had grown up beside the sea fishing all their lives felt that maybe that wasn't for them. I'm not saying by that that they lacked at all in intelligence. There's that kind of ridiculous snobbery around. It still prevails, really, where people think that people in certain jobs don't have intelligence and people in other jobs do have intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's quite absurd. 
you, you'll meet people in all walks of life of a very high intelligence. I've no doubt that these people were very intelligent men. But they weren't cultured and skilled in the ways that these debaters would have been who had spent all their days in Jerusalem. And perhaps as they saw the interaction with them, they thought, well, is, is this really for us? Are we able to do that? Are we able to so learn of our Lord and Master that when, when we are called to do it, we will be able to speak in his name? Will we be able to represent him wherever we are called and wherever we are asked and required to speak? Whether it be in a synagogue or whether it be in courts. It's no wonder if they might be afraid of that. For whatever reason, it was easier to fish than to preach. It always is. The strange thing is, this isn't, this isn't the last time Peter felt like that. And it's not the last time pers Peter persuaded other people to follow him. I've no doubt Peter was the ringleader in going back to fish here. That's why the Lord dealt with him primarily. Same happened right at the end of the Gospel according to John. That's a well-known incident for some of you anyway. After the resurrection, the Lord arranged to meet the disciples in Galilee on a mountain. But strangely, when you find the disciples in Galilee, they're not at a mountain. They're fishing in the sea. fishing. And again the Lord walks beside the shore. And he calls out to them, have you any fish? You'll remember how they recognized, Peter recognized him. And of course, as usual, he swam towards him. Christ had called him already from his fishing. He had called him to discipleship, to apostleship. Here again you expect to find him somewhere and he's fishing. Why is he fishing? Now I must admit, for a long time I thought there was nothing in this fishing, you know. In John chapter 21 you suddenly read that Peter says, I'm going fishing. And some other disciples went with him. Now I just thought, well that was just something to do. But the more I thought about it, the more I realise that there's far more to that. Peter always has fishing as some kind of competition, some kind of escape route. It's there all the time. It's, it's the, the way to go, the place to go, and the thing to do when the thing that God requires of you is for some reason too difficult. And you say, well, what was difficult about going to meet the Lord on the mountaintop? Plenty as far as Peter was concerned. Peter's love was great, there's no doubt about that. His heart was overflowing. And Peter was amazed that Christ had already forgiven him for his threefold denial beside the fireside. He was amazed at that. He thought that that sin was enough reason for the Lord Jesus Christ to have nothing more to do with him. But the Lord wonderfully forgave him. That's true. 
but his confidence is shot to pieces. And there is no way in Peter's estimation that he can ever, and remember we're talking here about after Christ's death and resurrection, (coughs) after Peter had fallen and denied the Lord, Peter says, there's no way I can open my mouth and I can speak again. He's called me to go to the mountain. What for? I'm not the same as the ten. I'm not the same as the rest. They didn't do what I have done. How can I stand up again in the name of the Lord? Maybe you felt that sometimes yourself, your sense of shame at what you've done, maybe, in your life. Maybe other people know it, which makes it worse. Maybe only you know it, but you know God knows it. And your sense of shame before God is so great that you don't feel that you can really take any kind of role again. You could imagine Peter saying something well like, I'll always be with your people, I will always sing when your people are singing but I won't lead the praise or I won't stand at the front or I won't give my testimony or anything like that I'll be like the woman who touched the hem of Christ's garment and then tried to slip away into the crowd so that she could just be a private Christian The Lord doesn't want any of us to be private Christians. It's almost oxymoronic, a kind of contradiction in terms. He doesn't want us to be private Christians. But there's no doubt that when Peter said, I'm going fishing, it's the same kind of thing as we've got here. I'm going back to what I know and to what I was comfortable with. That's exactly what we have here. He's going back to his nets. You'll discover, friends, in the Christian life, if you're not a Christian yet, if you become one, you'll discover it, that almost anything is easier than what God is calling you to do. There's always an easier alternative to what God wants you to do. And the devil will present it before you and say, oh, but you could do this, or but you could do that. Why don't you do this? Just not what the Lord wants you to do. Peter was comfortable fishing. He was good at it. He knew boats inside out. He skippered well. Didn't think he could do what Christ was asking him to do. Who can? Unless the one who's calling you enables you to do it. But that's the point. As we'll see in a moment. But it's amazing what the devil tells you that you can't do. He may tell you that you can't preach. He may tell you that you're no good in a fellowship. Don't open your mouth in a fellowship. He may even tell you that you're no good in hospitality. In fact, I remember once talking uh, to a woman who said that she could not entertain the Lord's people in her home because she couldn't produce the standard of hospitality that other people did. I had to tell her that that was quite clearly a temptation of the devil. Uh, no Christian worth his or her salt goes around Christian homes evaluating the standard of hospitality. If, if that's our motive, we're as well sitting at home. 
I'm sure it's not anybody's motive here. And by the way, I'm not actually talking about anybody who's present <coughs> in this congregation anyway. The woman who said that to me was from a previous congregation. When you've been to a few, nobody knows who you're talking about, which is always an advantage. But notice how the devil says, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're not able to do this, you're not equipped to do that, you're not intelligent enough to do that, you're not quick-witted enough to do that, you can't do it. And Peter and John are absent without leave, missing in action, fishing, and washing their nets after a night's fishing. But notice how the Lord deals with them. The first thing he does, and oh, God knows how to do this. First thing he does is he gives some complete failure in what he was always good at. No fish. No fish. Peter doesn't understand at the time the significance of getting no fish that night. By the time the next day is finished, he'll have understood all. He knows exactly what Christ is telling him with an empty net. But when the morning breaks, the fact of the matter is that they've caught nothing, skilled as they were. That's God's way of making what we want to do unproductive. He, do, he doesn't just get us to do what he wants him. He doesn't just get us to do what he wants us to do. He makes what we want to do unproductive. And you'll find that, you know, it doesn't matter what you put in the place of what God wants you to do. Whatever it was, you've made another choice. It seemed easier, more lucrative. Who knows what it was, but suddenly God curses it. Curses it in his own way. And I mean his own way. I mean, it may actually involve, let's say what he wanted you to do involved an outlay of money or something, or less money coming in or something like that. And you chose the thing that took more money coming in. And lo and behold, it was more lucrative. But lo and behold, you were putting it into a bag that was full of holes. That's what the prophet Haggai said to the people. They were building God's temple and they stopped and they started building their own houses and making their own houses extraordinarily beautiful while God's temple was half finished. But suddenly their money started to evaporate and they couldn't explain it. I don't know if you've ever had that situation where your money starts to evaporate and you can't explain it. Maybe this is one place to look. Are you walking in God's will? Have you made a choice for something that involved that and lo and behold, it's gone in you. But God curses your blessing, curses your gifts. Even the very things at which you excel, they're not productive anymore. Many a person that's called into the ministry finds things like that. They, they try and keep on at what they're doing and they, they lose it. It just goes in them. It's not that they're not industrious, it's, it's not that they're not trying, but just, it's gone. It's gone. Because the Lord wants it gone. He wants it gone. So God frustrates him in what he was good at. <coughs> the next thing God does with Peter is, well, I'm just putting it this way. Uh, 
just to try and convey this to you, but God puts Peter behind them in his pulpit. Now I'm putting it that way for a reason. When Peter pushes the boat out with Christ in it, he hears Christ preaching to the people and he's sitting behind him. And the people are aware of him just as they're aware of Christ. And he's hearing the man, of course, who spoke like no man ever spoke. And a fisher of men like no other fisher of men. He is the fisher of men, preeminently so. And as I said, no man ever spoke like him. That wasn't liable, really, to make Peter, James, uh, John and Andrew think that, that they would do it. The reason I'm putting it like that is because I remember an occasion when I was sitting behind someone in a pulpit very early in my old ministry. And it was at a communion. And, of course, you do sit in the pulpit and uh, you, you sat behind the person who was preaching. And both the services, of course, on that day at that time were to be in Gaelic. Uh, the senior minister was preaching in the morning and I was to be preaching in the evening. And the senior minister preached so well and so ably in the morning. And I was sitting behind him and I was saying to myself, am I supposed to follow that tonight in Gallic? And I, I'd have a feeling that the people looking on were actually pitying me uh, behind the poor person having to do such a thing because he seemed to soar so high. And uh, he preached so well, and of course, I felt as nothing in comparison with that. And through the afternoon, I was going over it and thinking, dear me, I can't do that. Of course, well, the fact was that I couldn't, but it didn't matter anyway. It was all pride. That's all it was. What else was it? Like I said to you a few weeks back, you, you strip this away, you strip that layer away, you take that excuse and you take that reason and that's what lies at the bottom of it all. Your pride. So what if I couldn't do what he did? If I could do what the Lord gave me and give the message that the Lord gave me well that was it. But the point is that sitting there I felt I can't do that. Can't do that. I'm sure that's how Peter felt. And the astonishing thing that I want to bring before you is that the Lord combines two things as he always does, he makes you unproductive in what you are doing and he makes you face the scale of the challenge of what you're supposed to be doing. He listens a whole day to the Lord preaching the gospel to the multitudes in front of him. And then he says, no, Peter, he says, let's go out into the deep. Launch out into the deep. And that, of course, was for Peter's sake. Now, Peter's not afraid of launching out into the deep as far as the natural waters go. Like I said, he's a skilled fisherman. He could sing the words of 107. How many times he rose up with the wave and went down again? <coughs> How many times did he reel and stagger like a drunk person? If, if you've been on a fishing boat, you'll know exactly what that's like. But he knows his stuff on the board. He'll go out into the deep. Of course, it's another matter to launch out into the deep that God wants him to launch out in. Go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Discipling them. 
baptizing them, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. That's a harder shift. To launch out into the deep and spiritual matters is always a difficult thing. Very often we paddle around in the shadows. In the shadows. The amazing thing is that we often take a leap of faith to come into the kingdom and then we stop jumping. We seem to think that we're then supposed to walk by sight. Oh, what a leap of faith you took when you became a Christian. Did you not? You took a leap of faith. You didn't know this and you didn't know that, how this person would respond or that person, your family or your workplace. You didn't have a clue, but you didn't care because it didn't matter. But now, like I said earlier, you suddenly want soft landing. Oh, I need to work that out. And, oh, I need to work that out. And I won't even go in for the ministry in case, oh, oh what about the, the house situation? Or, or what about that situation? Or what about the finances? Is that the way it's meant to be? We're meant to jump. We're meant to jump. Because the whole point of the exercise is that we're always entrusting ourselves to the care of the one who commands us. The gold and the silver it says and the cattle on a thousand hills it says do we believe that? What's the point of saying we believe in it if we then act like rationalists throwing up our balance sheets all the time? <coughs> no, it's not so easy to launch out into the deep but God wants you to do that in your personal life and me and mine in your family life to launch out into the deep <coughs> and let down your nets now, there are a couple of reasons why it seemed a bit foolish to go out into the deep for fish. First of all, there was no fish there. At least that's how Peter saw it. He should know he had fished all night. The second reason is that it's the midday sun by now. The Lord has been preaching since early morning and you just didn't go fishing in the midday sun. Every reason for not going except one, <clears throat> and that's the reason for going, which is that the Lord says so. There's no other reason, but I say so. Let down your net for a catch. And at least Peter is wise enough to say yes at your word, I will let it down. That's the reason why we do so much of what we do, or why we should do so much of what we do, because God says so. Trust and obey, trust and obey. Of course, you know the sequel. Down go the nets. A vast haul of fish. The nets actually begin. The, 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 the little fibres that make up the nets start to ping one after the other. There's a signal for James and John to bring out the other boat. We're told that both boats were filled to the gunnels. So much so that they were beginning to sink. And of course the effect on Peter was so profound. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Not just because he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, but because what the Lord had done so met his situation and his need. He felt unworthy. He felt unable to do what the Lord had called him to do. Therefore, he was missing in action. He was instrumental in James and John and Andrew being missing. You know, sometimes a, a strong-minded person can be responsible for leading others either into good or into bad. Watch following people, period. Follow the word of God. Follow the word of God. 
And the fact is that there was some kind of hesitation in Peter. We saw that hesitation in the passage that we read in Luke. The Lord calls someone to follow him. And there's an apparent keenness to do it, but there's a a little qualification. The last one's the best known. Uh, I will follow you um, wherever you go. And the Lord says, oh, I'm mixing them up in my head. Hold on till I just get the right one. Um, but let me first go. Sorry, yes, that I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, what's wrong with that? When God called, when Elijah called Elisha to follow him, he was allowed to say, Gee, you to his family. That seems to be what this man wants to do. Seems to be. Christ knows the heart. He knows a stalling tactic when he sees it. No one having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Was that in Peter? Had they put their hand to the plough but now just drawn back. So what Christ says to him is first, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the work. Don't be afraid of failing in it. I'm with you. I'm to be feared. But don't be afraid of me, if that makes any sense. I feared my father, but I wasn't afraid of him. That makes sense to me, and I hope it makes sense to you too. Uh, I feared him, but I wasn't afraid of him. It was a fear that always made me know that I was safe with him. But I had to watch myself nonetheless. I sometimes feel that's the way it is with a Christian and God. Uh, You go to him with all your troubles. At the same time, watch yourself. Uh, He does chastise, and chastisement is part of his love and kindness. He's a father not to be messed with, but he is your father. He is your father. And Christ says, yes, it's well for you too to prostrate yourself like that at my knees and it's at his knees because he was sitting at that point in time don't be afraid I said that I'll make you a fisher of men I'll be in your boat when you're fishing and because I'm in your boat when you're fishing I'll give you a command and a promise the the command I give you is to follow me this time don't just leave your nets Get rid of them. Don't just leave your boats. Get rid of them. Follow me wholeheartedly with your heart and with your hands. You know where you should have been last night. And you know where you should have been this morning. And from now on you won't be missing in action. I let you go and I let you fish. But let that be it. And from now on you are at my side. Rain, hail, or shine. Don't look back at the world. Don't look back at old comforts. Don't look back at what could have been. Don't look back, period. Face forward. That's how you began as a Christian. That's how you continue as a Christian. Forward's the only way to go. Not interested in going back. The second thing is the promise. This time he doesn't say, I'll make you fishermen, but you'll catch that with me on your boat doesn't say how many well the full net gives a promise of of a lot to come but 
the important point for us is that God will make our spiritual work productive. When we choose what God wants us to do, it will be productive. I'm sure the devil will say, ah, that's not very productive. You don't have good productivity there like you had before. But with Christ on the board, you'll be as productive as he wants you to be. You will catch fish. The empty net was old occupation, finished, fruitless. The full net was new occupation, fruitful, glorious. Empty net, past life. Full net, new life. That is the point of the miracle for Peter. And therefore, they forsook all. Some people say it wasn't much to forsake. I once read somebody who actually said that it wasn't much to glory and to leave your fishing boat and to follow Christ. Well, that's trivial. That's superficial. Like I said, it was a lucrative business. These were fairly wealthy villages on the shores of Capern- on the shores of um, Gennesaret or, or the Sea of Galilee. Uh, to have two substantial boats and to have hired servants working them along with yourselves as partners was a lucrative business. It was what he had. And God doesn't expect you to give what you don't have. He just expects you to be ready to relinquish what you've got, be it small or be it great. It's a small sacrifice for him. This time, the call lasted and it was obeyed. Is there a call in your own life? What is God calling you to do tonight? Is it even just to believe in him and to come into his kingdom? You're not for the sake of an alternative. You'll find that the alternative will eventually be cursed. Let us pray. O Lord, grant us to put uh, nothing uh, before you in life, nothing before obedience and service to our Lord and to our Master. We thank you for the kindness that you showed even to those who were slow and who were hesitating in what you called them to do. We bless you for the kindness that said, Do not be afraid, and that I will be with you. I will make you fishers of men, and you will catch them. You will bless, indeed, our obedience. We thank you for so doing. In the precious name of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen. close singing one of the great psalms of self-denial or one of the great verses anyway in Psalm 45 and the second version of the psalm at verse 10 Psalm 45 the short meter version at verse 10 O daughter take good heed incline and give good ear. So listen first, then make your choice. You must forget thy kindred all and father's house most dear. And when she makes that choice, notice how beautiful she becomes to her Lord. Thy beauty to the king shall then 
delightful be and do thou humbly worship him because thy Lord is he. And in verse 14 she comes at last to the king in robes with needle wrought. She's made beautiful. The virgins that do follow her shall unto thee be brought. They shall be brought with joy and mirth on every side into the palace of the king. There they shall abide. 11, 12 and 14 and 15. Let's stand to sing. <coughs> Oh, daughter, take Be with you all. Amen.